what will you inherit from your parents? Parents typically pass down to their children at least a portion of their wealth when they die. And I don't think it's very difficult for us to value such gifts of wealth, is it? There's a natural interest there. We even see the sad evidence of this all too often among families who, because of an inheritance, begin to fight with one another. There might even be a lawsuit in the mix, at least bickering and hard feelings and ugly displays of money-loving selfishness because someone leaves money for someone else. But generally speaking, we're not quite so keen about non-material inheritance passed down from our parents, what we might call rightly tradition in the best sense of the word. This is the case in part because the traditions passed down to us are not tangible, such as wealth. And they often come, don't they, with some mixed blessings. Some of that tradition's really good. Some of that tradition's just frankly not all that great at all. Now most of us are mature enough to respect the life-stabilizing influence of tradition in our lives, of received tradition. Yet no one's heritage is really flawless, is it? For some of you, these concepts are a dark and troubling subject. You have inherited a tradition. What has been passed down to you has been a tradition of twisted values, of destructive attitudes, of broken promises and unloving actions. For you inherited tradition, the life passed down by your family continues to have a painful influence upon your life. There's others among us, and perhaps the majority, I don't know, but many of us would genuinely thank God for our heritage. Yet we all struggle to fully appreciate the traditions handed down to us, sometimes for no other reason than that they are traditions. There's something in us sometimes that just grates against the idea of someone giving something to me that I am to follow and to honor. Inherited material wealth is really easy to receive and appreciate. We don't need to take a course in it. But inherited tradition, not so much. But I'd like to say this today in light of the text before us. When we properly see ourselves as God's children, we will grow in our appreciation of the unparalleled value of tradition in our lives. Tradition understood in the right sense. But I, would, I think it is important for us to come to the place where we perceive the significance of tradition of that which is passed down from generation to generation that gives us stability, that gives us life, that gives us purpose. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are the rich recipients of such tradition. We have received by faith an invaluable heritage that teaches us to live with moral skill and to grow in godly discernment. And we've been working in that tradition over these weeks as we've looked through the book of Proverbs. This tradition passed on by parents in godly homes. This tradition passed on by faithful Bible-preaching churches. This tradition of moral skill and discernment is a heritage of exquisite worth. It is a heritage we should relish 
particularly in a world infatuated with passing fads, in a world mesmerized by empty theories given to destructive patterns of behavior and intoxicated by the unfettered freedoms of individualism. In that world, coming to see the significance of tradition. If somewhere along life's journey, somewhere, you have had a parent, you have had a church, you have had a teacher of some sort along the way, somewhere along the way, who has passed on the counsel of God to you, you have inherited immense wealth. Do we recognize the value of such tradition? We're reminded of this truth in the fourth chapter of Proverbs where we witness yet another call to value and embrace the tradition of God-fearing wisdom. I invite you to this chapter. If you'll turn there in your Bibles, Proverbs chapter 4. We find here again the value and a call to embrace the tradition of God-fearing wisdom. In keeping with the setting of Proverbs, this lecture begins with a father addressing his sons. Through His voice, our Heavenly Father speaks to us as we consider again the heritage of wisdom and our call to embrace it. We find, first of all, in the first four verses, an exhortation to acquire wisdom. Nothing new in the book of Proverbs. But here it is again, an exhortation to acquire wisdom. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight or know insight. For I give you good precepts, do not forsake my teaching. The Father has something to say. His words of instruction are a gift to the Son. They are a gift of good precepts by which the Son will learn to live with insight. And so the Father rightly pleads for the Son's undivided attention and directs the Son not to forsake this teaching, And not to spurn this vital teaching. I spoke with a visiting Bible college professor. Visited a Bible college and lectured one day. And I asked how it went. And he reported that the students didn't pay a whole lot of attention. I just couldn't click with the class. But then he said this. But I had good stuff. What did he mean? I, I know the man. He wasn't being proud. Not saying I'm a great teacher. What he was saying was that the material that he was presenting from God's Word was solid. I had good stuff. That's what the Father's saying here. I have good stuff. Don't turn away from it. Don't spurn it. Don't forsake my teaching. It's good stuff. Indeed, this is what parental love does. It passes on the truth of God to the next generation. It is concerned to do so. And it pleads with young people to hear this wisdom. We relate to this on a lot of different levels as we take this in today and consider this reality. We relate to it as some older here, some younger. But perceiving this wisdom, how significant it is, And you'll notice here, the emphasis is not on the son discovering truth under the supervision of a father tutor. Now that would fit very well in our day. We we cheer that in our Western tradition. 
to have a student working along with a tutor and the tutor saying, discover the truth, go find it, I'll give you some steerage here and there, but go find the truth. And and there's some value in that way of learning, certainly. I'm not saying that it's wrong, but here the emphasis is different. It's not in that direction to go find wisdom for yourself and come out of life somewhere with some understanding of something that works for you. Rather, here the emphasis is, I have good stuff and I'm giving it to you. Receive it. Not encouraged to discover truth for ourselves, whatever that might turn up. Ours is not first and foremost a task of discovering something brand new. It is pursuing all things through the grid of the delivered truth of God. We have been given a trust. We have received a tradition. And we work through the window of that tradition in all that we believe and seek to do and learn. The father now assures his son that he's not asking him to do something he would never do himself. Rather, he draws attention to an intergenerational chain of truth. Notice verse 3. When I was a son... When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother. The Hebrew idea there, the tender and only one, is the idea when I was an immature child, receiving the special attention of my mother because of my immaturity. Guarding me, protecting me, watching over me. Way back then, when I was a son with my father, he taught me, verse 4, and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. What's he saying? He said to me the same thing I'm saying to you. He passed it on to me, I'm passing it on to you. The father is not passing on junk He's passing on to his children the moral instruction his father passed on and by which he now gladly steers his life. I know what I'm saying. I know what I'm teaching. I know what I'm asking you to receive this tradition, to not lose sight of it. Hold on to it, son. One author said these traditional teachings were lovingly handed down by his parents. They were ingrained in his soul He has seen them shape life and prove reliable. It's not tradition for tradition's sake. It's that body of tradition which gives life. This I hand down to you. In our youth, every one of us and those who are young among us now, it's certainly the case. Young people often ask, how do I know my parents are right? How do I know the tradition they're handing down to me is really good and isn't just falsehood? Not every tradition is right. Indeed, our parents and church leaders can be wrong. The answer, of course, is to rely upon the conviction of God as He makes clear to us what the truth is. But there's a process here. And for those that are young among us particularly, you need to discern this. There's things that your parents are saying right now you don't believe, you don't like to hear it, it doesn't make sense to you, and there's someday you're going to stake your life on that same stuff. It'll happen. By God's grace, over time, you'll learn, you'll grow. It's happened to all of us, which is why we pass it on to you. We understand how this works. 
but it ends up being the conviction of God in our soul. But as you wait, young people, as you wait, don't throw off the teaching of those who love you and are nurturing you in your life. Don't throw it off too quickly. Don't quickly throw away the teaching of those who love you for the worldly teaching of people who don't care anything about you. They just want you to follow in with their sin. That's a foolish way forward. And the father here pleads with the son, I've received this tradition from my father and I pass this tradition on to you. Heed it. Grasp it. Your grandfather taught me what I'm now teaching you. Verse 5. This is what he said. This is what I'm saying to you. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Son, you must acquire this heritage. You must choose not to turn away from what I'm teaching you. I can't make you take it. But I can proclaim it and I can plead with you to respond. Fitting to the context of Proverbs and the Catechism to young men, the father talks almost now as if wisdom is a woman the young man is to secure as a, as a wife of sorts. It's almost romantic language that we now find in the text. And it's leading somewhere in the book of Proverbs. But he says, verse 6, Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. We see the marital language almost that's used. Be steadfastly loyal to wisdom, he says. Love her. And what will she do? She will preserve and guard your life from moral ruin and from catastrophe. Pursue her, retain her, guard her, protect her like a noble wife, and she will enrich your life. Verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. So the first thing in becoming a wise person, the first thing in learning to live life with moral skill, is to want it. I'll not name the individual, but in the first sermon in this series in Proverbs, we laid out the invitation of wisdom and what wisdom was seeking to do in our lives and how this book is functioning and the skill of life that it is seeking to provide. And someone came up to me after that first sermon and said, how can anyone not come back? I think that was a demonstration of somebody who wanted it. In fact, there's a lot of people who could hear that first sermon and not come back and not care. But if you want it, you say wisdom is living life with moral skill before God. It is living with biblical discernment. It's living wisely. I want that. I want to live that kind of beautiful life. I want to hear the counsel of God and put it together in my world. And so I would say to those who are parents among us, to those who are influencing a younger generation, which is all of us as adults on some level, in this assembly certainly, children are often less than responsive to our teaching. We need to be patient. We need to remain faithful. We need to keep teaching. We cannot control hearts and we cannot change attitudes but we can be consistent in our teaching. 
we can be consistent in our application of wisdom to our lives, and we can pray. We can seek God and ask Him to put a desire in their heart for right. Kids cannot reject truth they don't know, and they can't embrace it either. What we need to do is to continue to faithfully teach. And for those who are young among us, wanting wisdom is the one thing your elders cannot pass on to you. Pray for that desire. Pursue it with all of your heart. Pursue it by listening and by heeding. And remember, in all of this, we're not talking just to the young among us, but to all of us who get stuck in our youth. There's many of us wise in our own eyes who may be very aged, in fact, who have spurned the truth of God. We don't want to listen. We don't want to hear. We don't like the idea of receiving tradition. We too need to come to this point of pleading before God, give me a desire to hear. Give me a desire to be confronted with my folly and to respond in wisdom. So we live in a world that says, get wealth, get fame, get your way, and with all you're getting, get what you really want in life. That's the message we're under every day. God's call on our lives is get wisdom. Whatever else you get, however you go for it, get this wisdom. You've got to want it. Wealth is secondary, intellectual ability is secondary, physical gifts are secondary, social status is secondary. In fact, they're all useless without wisdom. Without the fear of God, you have no life. Get it. Go for it. Hold on to it. Not only must we pursue wisdom even more fundamentally, as verse 8 brings out, we must value it highly. And of course, valuing it is what leads us to want it. Verse 8, prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. This is not a tradition that holds people down, is it? I mean, think of this. Really let these words sink in. It's not a tradition that encourages, say, let's say, suffering as a way of earning blessing. Really pay the price here, really do the hard thing, and there will be a benefit to it. God pleads with us to prize and embrace wisdom as the pathway to life, as the pathway to high honor and distinct beauty. She will exalt you, she will honor you, she will crown your life with beauty. Presumably in the eyes of others. Perhaps in your own eyes, perhaps in God's eyes, certainly true. But I think the idea is a social concept here that others will see the beauty of your life as you apply wisdom to it. It's not asking us here to do something that is harmful, but rather to do what is best for us. Many people desperately crave the respect of others, yet never seem to grasp the moral skill necessary to gain such honor. They live a life of folly and wonder why people look down on them. Folly does not exalt you. Folly does not honor you. Folly looks to others 
like folly. You live foolishly, and that's what people see. They don't see skill in living. They see somebody who's constantly doing the wrong thing. Someone who seems to be pre-programming their life up front to destruction. That's what people see. Such people tend to blame others. This person's fault, that person's fault, nobody loves me, nobody seems to appreciate me. The focus should be on the pursuit of wisdom. She will exalt you. She will honor you. Apply the tradition that God has passed down through His prophets, through His apostles, and she will put a crown of beauty on your head. Yes, many won't see it, but many will. She will honor you. Get it. Go after it. We think on these ideas, getting wisdom, prizing it, honoring it, embracing it, drawing it close, keeping it there. Many have illustrated with the young man who traveled 1,600 miles to see Socrates. Socrates, we're not talking airplane, okay? This was a long trip. 1,600 miles to see this great Greek philosopher. And the young man came to to Socrates, this wise man, and said, I want wisdom. I need wisdom. How do I get it? I know that you're the answer. You're the source. Teach me. And he said, come with me and I'll show you wisdom. They walked down to the seashore and he said, let's go into the water. And they entered into the surf and they're standing there in in the ocean. And Socrates took the young man, his head in his hands, and dunked him in the water and held him underwater. And he held him to the place where the guy wasn't sure if he was going to be drowned to death. He finally let him out and they went back to the beach. And as I understand, Socrates went somewhere else for a while and came back and found the young man and said, you want wisdom? When you want wisdom like you wanted oxygen, you'll get it. You've got to want it. What we want so naturally is our own way. What we want so naturally is for other people to see that Our way is right. To honor us in what we like to think about ourselves and how we want our life to look and work. God says, you need to want my wisdom like a drowning man wants to breathe. Then you'll get it. Get it. Embrace it. Go after it. Desire it. Plead with God to give you that desire And then, at verse 10, we have a shift in the text. And here we enter on to a series of exhortations to stay on the path of wisdom. Acquire it, get it, and then once on that path, stay on that path. Notice as we work our way down from 10 and following, the numerous references to way, path, walk, step, stumble, run, Enter on this way. Go on it. Turn, don't turn away from it. Don't stumble. The path of righteousness, the path of unrighteousness. Very key theme as we walk through. Verse 10, my son, he says, hear and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. Remembering the Hebrew concept that is full, not necessarily living a long life. 
biologically, but that you would live a full life. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. The traditional teaching leads us on a path of moral integrity. There may be suffering on the path, indeed there will be, but this path is cleared of the pitfalls of sin. That's the one thing we can take care of in our life. I can't control the trials and the difficulties that I face, but I can remove the stumbling blocks of sin and the results of foolish living. This is a straight path that never trips you up. On this path, you build up and create relationships. You don't destroy them. On this path, you deal wisely with money and physical resources. You do not squander wealth. On this path, you suffer the dignity, you suffer with dignity and invest in eternity. You do not live for sensual pleasure and meaningless frivolities. Not on this path. On this path, you know how to deal with life, how to live it with skill. You don't stumble through life. And so the Father repeats again, verse 13, keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. The tradition, the moral heritage of the faith is not a body of foolish rules calibrated to cramp our style. This tradition is your life. It is life itself. Listen to me, pleads the Father. Listen to me and live. Now taking and staying on the path of the upright has a negative aspect, which the Father now addresses, and it's a, it's, it's a repeated theme once again. Verse 14, we've heard this before, but he says, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it, and pass on. Any question what he means? Just don't go there. This kind of staccato imperative. Don't walk on that path. There's no question where the Father stands, no question where God stands. God is a jealous God. He alone is God. He alone is our Father. And He knows that every other God is a false God that destroys its worshipers. And so He says, don't touch that. Like a parent says to a little child with a hot stove, don't touch that. Don't go near it. Stay away. So God says of the path of folly and sin, don't go there. Don't flirt with evil. You cannot stand, then it teaches us, with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. You cannot walk on the road to destruction and on the road to eternal life at the same time. You cannot love the ways of unrighteousness and walk in fellowship with God. There are only two ways And we've all got to ask the question today, which way am I on? Which road am I on? Now, this does, here's our Western individualism, this does cramp our style, doesn't it? I like the idea of options, and two doesn't sound like much of an option. But can we not respect our Father to give it to us straight and say, there's just two? A lot of people live a lot of their life trying to straddle the two paths. Truth is, there's only two. Understanding forgiveness 
understanding repentance and all of that, we must choose the, the way. And there's only two choices. There's this path of righteousness which we are to pursue, and there is this path to evil and to sin which we must avoid at all costs. Verse 16, why? Why must we avoid it? For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. Put in our terminology today, here's why you avoid it. Sin is addictive. It's always addictive. Folly is addictive. When you choose to walk away from God's counsel and you take the path of sin, you eventually come to the place in your life where you sleep, eat, and drink wickedness. It's what you think of when you're fantasizing. It's what you think of when you're daydreaming. It's what you think of when you have any time to think and plan. Sin is addictive. You feed off of it at a certain point. You start wanting to bring others down with you, in fact. They don't sleep unless they get somebody to stumble. If you think choosing sin is no big deal, what the Father is teaching us here is you're delusional. You're delusional. All sin has consequences in our hearts, and all sin has consequences outside to others. It affects relationships. And when we play with this fire, we're going to get burned. It's the way it works. You reject the tradition of God's truth. You fail to prize and follow the ways of God, and your life will spiral downward. It doesn't get better with age. It gets worse. You might be popular in what you're doing. You might have some measure of fun in what you're doing, certainly. There is a genuine appeal to sin. But your life will degenerate. Sin is addictive and it draws us downward. It sucks us in. Know this. This is not a strong possibility. It's not like smoke cigarettes and you may get lung cancer. I mean, there's a fair probability that you would get lung cancer, but it's not like that. This is an absolute guarantee. This is essentially a promise. Spurn the wisdom and righteousness of God and your life will spiral downward into ruin. In the mercies of God, sometimes that spiral downward takes a long, long time to hit bottom. And I don't know if some people in this life necessarily ever hit it. But it's a downward spiral that's destructive and painful. It isn't going to go well. You're not going to recover it. We must avoid it altogether. It is addictive, it's easy to want. And sin feeds off your soul. It will leave you empty and oriented toward causing others to stumble with you. In some way, passing on the pain is what's part of sin. It's, it's part and parcel of that way. Now verses 18 and 19 form then a summation of the section in contrast to the way of the ungodly. The Father says, verse 18, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. 
You get the idea here. Choose the path of wisdom, prize and embrace biblical insight, and your life will grow increasingly illuminated. It doesn't say increasingly easy. Not you'll get health, wealth, and everything you want in life, but it will become increasingly illuminated. So the trials and difficulties that you face, you'll see more clearly how to live through them, how to face them, how to take responsibility for them. That's, that's the end of it. You will see clearly. You'll know how to walk. Live with moral skill, and wisdom will preserve your life, and you will, in some measure, prosper because of it. In contrast, verse 19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Here we have the picture of a path of moral folly, people stumbling in the darkness. The lights are not on, and they don't know really what they're doing. They don't perceive the consequences of their sin. They're fairly clueless to the disaster they are programming into their lives. It's utterly maddening. We can watch people choosing the path of sin and realizing this is not going to end well. It's like you're on a bicycle, you've lost the pedals, and you're going downhill at breakneck speed and about to break your neck into a wall. But yet people in that condition just look around and say, what's your problem? It's what this person's doing to me. It's what that person's doing to me. I have this excuse. I have that, that excuse. It's a path to destruction. They're going to hit the wall. That's what God is telling us. As our Father counsels us, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know over what they stumble They are pre-programming their life as they grope along the way, refusing the light of conscience and revelation. They are pre-programming their life to inevitably stumble. Oh, there's a feel-good message, huh? I mean, this is hard stuff. And I, I look at your faces, and I know in my own life, we know people we love very dearly that are on that crash course. As their lives spiral downward, slowly, almost imperceptibly sometimes, but moving downward into destruction. It's a horrifying reality, but where we take heart today is you're here, and I'm here, and we're hearing this word from God, and every last one of us is very capable of getting on the wrong path and entering the downward spiral to destruction. But here's the voice of God calling out to us in this situation today, heed wisdom, get it, keep it, embrace it, love it, prize it, go after it, walk on the path of righteousness, and your life will be increasingly illuminated. You'll see clearly how to live. Here's the promise. It is a hard world. There are many great disappointments in our life as people seem so blind to the truth. But may it not be us that's blinded. Here is our opportunity to respond. Here is your opportunity to respond today. Now, in light of this teaching, I'd like to draw out just a few lines of application for us. And we'll sit in this for a little while. But with your patience, if we can plow forward just a bit, the first thing I'd like to reflect on is repetition. You get this sort of deja vu feeling here as we're going through this text. I mean, have we considered anything new? 
maybe in this text, the father getting the tradition from his father might be something of a unique emphasis, but really almost every line of these 19 verses has already been stated in the book of Proverbs. We have the repeated themes of the two paths, the call to heed wisdom, the call to pursue it, the call to retain wisdom. All of this has been stated over and again in the book of Proverbs. But the truth of the matter is, isn't this, isn't this a wise father? We all need repetition. We've got to hear it again and again and again. God apparently knows that no matter how much is said, there will always be people who need to repent and to change, people who need to hear it again. And so here it is. And there may, it may be you in the most significant area of all. You've not come to the place where you have given your soul to God in trust. You're trying to make your own way the way you want to make it. And you haven't yielded body and soul to Jesus Christ and to His saving purposes. Here it is again. Take the path of wisdom. Trust Christ crucified and risen. Trust Him as Lord and Savior. Here it is again. Take this path. The opportunities here right now today, by God's grace, to respond. And not to close your ears again and to walk out and say, maybe someday. Make it today. The repetition is for you. And for those who know Christ as Savior, and we rejoice in this truth, and we know that it's our life, and we're responding that way in our soul, here's another opportunity to repent of sin and embrace the promises of God. We see the path clearly. By God's grace, we're on it. But where is it that we're being pulled away? Here it is again, the opportunity to repent and turn and change. Repetition. The second line I'd like to chase here is those who received a godless inheritance. What about you? Those who look at your heritage, who look at the tradition that you've received and say, mixed bag, most of that bag was really bad. There's a lot of negative in it. There's negative in it for all of us. This truth is passed on by sinners to sinners. But I'm talking to some of you here who just say, I, I've got no tradition. I've got no inheritance. The only thing I saw was really ugly. I think it's important to discern that that's the case. It's important to determine what heritage are you receiving? The heritage that you gained from your parents, from your upbringing, may have been really poor, but what heritage are you tagged into now? Are you in God's story? Or are you trying to write your own story? Trying to fix what was broken that was handed on to you, and you haven't rooted in God's story. I would caution you, first of all, there is great folly in dismissing God's wisdom because some parent was critical, hypocritical, or in some way failed you. That's a double tragedy. You allow the wrong that they have done to you to lead you away from your hope and your life walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ. That makes absolutely no sense at all. And the fact that a bad parent 
knew a good Savior doesn't make the good Savior bad. He's still the Savior. He still loves you. And God will be to you through Christ the perfect Father. Root in to that story. Root yourself into the tradition of Scripture and the teaching of those who faithfully interpret that divine word. Maybe you need to understand that some of the things I've received are twisted and wrong and have been very difficult for me to overcome. That's in some level true for every one of us. As Peter wrote in his first epistle, Chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That's what salvation is on some level, to be delivered from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Whoever they are, whatever errors they committed, we are not redeemed through our families. We're not redeemed through what we receive from them. We are redeemed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. His redeeming grace, the forgiveness of sin in Him, is where we root in. The answer is to run into the arms of our Heavenly Father. Don't ever let a bad parent who knew about a good God turn you away from the goodness of God. Third line to chase here, briefly. There's only 85, so just hang in there. (laughs) No, just a few. The key to life is the source of knowledge. Now, that could be said a lot of different ways, a key to life. It's not the only key and the only way that we can put it. But the key to life in this context is where are you getting your information? What is the source of knowledge? Every one of us is tagging into various avenues of knowledge, various sources of instruction in how to live our lives. Where are you plugging in. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. You hear the Father to the church pleading, hold on to the traditions. 1 Corinthians 11.2, maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. I received them from Christ, I passed them on to you, don't turn away from them. The source of truth is not a matter of blazing a trail through a jungle. The tradition we follow is a path many have walked before us. And ultimately, what we're doing in all of this is following the Lord Jesus Christ. We're following on the trail that He blazed for us. I always do those things that please the Father, He said. That's who we're following. And from Christ to the apostles and their writings in Scripture, we have a tradition laid out for us. This trail is narrow. Few find it, but it's paved. It's not filled with moral stumbling blocks. It's clear sailing in that sense of the term. It goes uphill. It goes into the valleys. There's some rugged terrain but there's no stumbling blocks. So what is our tradition as a church? What are we passing on? I think it would be very clear from just who we are in this one setting today. Look at our website or something like that. But you would see that we are passing on the tradition of Scripture. 
the truth that God has revealed in his word. That's what we're about as a church. That is important to us. And there's no way that I can necessarily summarize that message, but I've, I've listed here just a few ideas to address particularly to those who are new in the faith. You're just coming to follow Christ as the Lord and Savior. Or to those who are younger, the children among us. What are we passing on to you? What is the tradition that's coming across here? Just a representative list. But in light of the book of Proverbs, in light of what Scripture teaches, this is what we're passing on. Number one, do not engage in premarital sex. Wait until God leads you to a godly mate. Rest in God's purpose if you remain single, but marry a man or woman who will influence you to walk closer to God and love that husband or wife as a display of the love between Christ and His church. We're saying that, young people, to you. That's a tradition we're passing on. Number two, see money as a trust from God. To serve His cause. Do not love money. Use it to bless others. Spread the gospel. Stabilize the church through the gifts that God gives you to give on to others. Number three, we're passing this on. Seeking godly counsel, patiently discern your gifts and use them all your days to serve Jesus Christ. Whatever they are, whatever life occupation God gives you, work every minute of every day for the glory of God. And your work, invest it in the spread of the gospel to all nations. Number four, always be, we're passing this on, always be an active, loyal, committed, involved, covenanting member of a Bible-believing, world-touching, gospel-honoring local church. It'll be made of sinners. It won't be perfect. But get rooted into the life of the church. This is Jesus' way of influencing this world. Don't waste your life pursuing your own selfish agenda. Link arms with a local church that is serving God and blessing people. Be in that life. This we're passing on. This we pass on, young people. Live a life of holiness and distinction from a godless world. Learn to think like a mature Christian. Be discerning about the subtle attacks of Satan in every area of life. Work, entertainment, leisure, food, hobbies, family, music, material possessions. Live your life for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ through a life committed to prayer and reading the Word of God. Number six, fear God. Honor your parents. Reverence authority, obey the laws of the land, love people, confess sin, do right. And ultimately, the tradition that we're passing on in this church is embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and calibrate your life to the center, to the hub of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. Link everything into that truth. Follow Him in believer's baptism and link up with His people in this world. These admonitions are just representative. But they highlight the traditions being passed down through this local church and I trust in our homes 
as we seek to parent our children. And there are those of us here, mature in years, who've missed some of those points along the way. We're not tagged in to those points along the way. It's not just an instruction for children in years, but for those immature living in folly. These are ideas that we need to embrace, and they're just representative. Sergei Sudev of Moldova. Sergei had an uncle. Didn't know him well, spoke to him one time at some length. They had a conversation, and Sergei never talked to his uncle again. Ten years passed. No conversation. But one day there was a knock on his door in the town of Komrat, Moldova, where Sergei was a poor, a, a poor journalism student, just fighting to get along in life. At the door stood agents who informed Sergei that his uncle had died. And he'd left him with 950 million euros. 950 million. The average person living in Moldova makes about 3,500 a year. With one knock at the door, Sergei was one of the richest men in Moldova. How excited do you think he was? Is that a problem you'd like to deal with this afternoon, <laughs> isn't it? In our heart to just say, wow, would that ever be fun? It wouldn't be. It would destroy our life. We know all of that. But at least in, in fantasy land, that would really be exciting to figure out how to divide all that up. If you have had someone convey to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have trusted that gospel and been born again, you are far wealthier in that inheritance than was Sergei Sudev in his 950 million euros. We're richer. We're an heir of Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. You're an inheritor of eternal riches. Thank God for the tradition that delivers the richest of all inheritances, the inheritance that delivers us from sin and gives us life in Him for eternity. Rejoice in that. What will you inherit from your parents? What's far more important is what will you inherit from your heavenly Father? That is a wealth beyond description. Embrace it. Grasp it. Run hard after it, and it will crown your life with beauty here and forever in the presence of the Lord. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I pray that you would again bring to saving faith. You know, as you look down on this congregation who's on the wrong path, you know who's living for self and rejecting your saving grace, and I just pray that you'd now bring conviction. And by your mercy, deliver those who are headed for a crash. And squash the pride of any heart right now saying, that won't be me. I'll get it figured out. And I pray for those of us who have embraced you as our Savior and trusted your wise purposes. 
I pray that we'll see the value of our inheritance in Christ. That we will see His work of saving grace, His death in our place, His resurrection power, and that we will rejoice and go hard after wisdom. Deepen us in this endeavor. Through this challenge today we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Let's stand together as we respond in song. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, he is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you for refuge to Jesus has Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will still give thee aid, I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent death. The soul that hath leaned for repose, I will not depart to his foes, that soul of hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. We gather again this evening. I wanted to just mention that um, as we gather the consideration tonight, we want to look at the uh, history of our church from Scripture and from what we can gain and learn there. I uh, just want to encourage you, it's, I think some significant discussions that will be taking place this week and next by God's grace. As we look back tonight and as we look forward uh, next Sunday night, Lord willing, and seek to consider uh, where we are in this journey and how to respond uh, in faith to the Lord. We're just, it's a it's an kind of in-house family discussion. Everybody's invited. There's no secrets or anything like that, but it's very much about our life and our history as a church and want to encourage you to be with us uh, tonight as you have opportunity. We've been challenged here in God's Word. Let's bow before Him in meditation as we part ways here today. May we do so encouraging each other, praying for one another, and contemplating what we have learned through the Spirit's teaching. And now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time and now and forever. And God's people said, Amen.